Bibles, uh, as we approach the question of Christian stewardship or owning what God has entrusted to us, biblical ownership, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning, please. There's your image for the discussion of stewardship or Christian ownership. I mentioned uh, last time uh, we're talking about this because um, it's a popular topic and it really helps us organize our thoughts and communicate with those around us. 2017, um, two real American heroes, uh, Jocko Willink and uh, Leif Babin, wrote uh, co-wrote a book called Extreme Ownership, and um, it's really a neat really a neat book on leadership. The reason I'm so excited about it, the main reason, is because they present, uh, I guess what sailors call sea stories. Where's, where's my, well, missing my sailor. Aren't they, they're, anyway, when you tell stories about what it was like in the Navy. So the Navy SEALs are, all their sea stories are on land usually, which is, as an Army guy, I'm like, that's pretty cool. But anyway, um, go Army, beat Navy next week. Um, but, um, but these guys took, had a, a, a big role as SEAL officers working in the Battle of Ramadi in Iraq in the, uh, sort of the, one of the seasons of, of hot action in, um, in the late Iraq war. And, um, the lessons they learned from their experiences are all through, they weave this into their corporate leadership training, coaching sort of uh, business. And it's really neat the way they do that. And um, you can't read these guys' work and get the gospel out of it. That's not the point. I know of Christian pastors who make a huge killing uh, selling, teaching on biblical model leadership without Christ. They'll teach you all about leadership and never mention the cross or the gospel or what the leader actually did for us and how that is the basis in Christ for everything we do in cutting an example and representing him and how we live, which is the essence of Christian leadership. But the reason I wanted to use this illustration of these guys and their, and their leadership book is they, um, they're addressing constantly what we have to deal with as believers, that we don't talk about very often. Now, parents training teenagers talk about this. When we talk about you have to learn to be responsible, you need to grow up, you need to uh, not just go for freedom, but the responsibility that comes with freedom. That's a conversation that, as we're trying to get some launch going, launching, going to do something great, go do something with your life as we're working on that, we have to talk about volition. We have to talk about the capacity God gave all of us to make choices. 
And um, as soon as I say that, immediately people that, that think in terms of theology or theology fans will start wondering, is he going to be Calvinistic or Arminian in his talk about free will and choices and responsibility? And I think that is um, a trap that you can argue and debate all that and then lose sight of the actual facts that we're responsible to make our choices. God has given us a sacred trust of the ability to make choices. And the reason why I choose what I choose and how that all works together with my makeup, I mean, there are millions of questions we could ask about our philosophical stance on anthropology that the Bible doesn't answer. But one thing you can be certain of that the Bible constantly says is we're responsible for the choices that we make. God holds us responsible. Even whether you trust in Christ as your Savior, he holds you responsible for that choice. John 3.18 is my favorite proof on this. So if your system doesn't incorporate John 3.18, that he holds those responsible for not believing in the name of the only begotten Son of God, then you don't really have much of a system. And that's uh, studying systematic theology, that's, that's a lot of the conclusion. I can reason without the Bible with you all day, but if I use the biblical data and actually incorporate all of it, I end up with this is bigger than all of us, and that's really uh, helpful. But the topic before us is the capacity God gave us to make decisions. That's what biblical ownership or stewardship is. And what the SEAL guys are saying is that you have certain decisions that are the moral choice that you should make. And, and just so I'll, I'll kind of book review with you real quick, extreme ownership is the radical notion that when your group that you're leading fails at something, it's all your fault as the leader. That's what it means. That's what extreme ownership is. It's like, I didn't do it. I didn't pull the trigger that shot the, the good guy when we should have shot the bad guy, but it is the leader of the organization. I take full responsibility. That's what they're saying. And there's a lot of pushback on that. Well, I mean, I can't be in control of the decisions other people make. No, but you're responsible. And there is, there has to be someone that takes the, takes the hit for it and then says, and these are the decisions we need to make so that that never happens again. And then the rest of the, the work, after you figure out that you own whatever happens, is um, the kinds of strategic planning and decisions that you make to make sure that you succeed, that you win. And I, I recommend their work. I think it's really great. And I, as an American patriot, I love it, that it's incorporating the experiences of those who, regardless of all the other factors that we worry about, when they get a mission, they figure it out, they, they focus on the mission, and they and they disregard their own egos. They disregard themselves in order to accomplish the mission. And uh, that, that should echo right with us with Philippians chapter 2. Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to be seized and held or held on to. He is God the Son, but he doesn't worry about receiving his proper respect and glory from his creatures. He becomes one of us and humbles himself before the Father. And at the hands of these creatures, in the plan of God the Father, he went to the cross, humbling himself all the way to the point of the death of the cross. And for this reason also, he was highly exalted and given a name above every name. So letting go of me so that I can focus on God and the mission he's given me, this is the biblical notion. And, and I don't know if these guys are Christians. I don't know. I haven't researched it. But that's, the, that's a very Christian notion, and it's um, not an accident that it's coming out in what's left of the culture that we have come from. All right.
So the topic is decisions that we have to make, owning our responsibilities. We said, we said that you have basically um, lots of decisions that you can make with things that have been entrusted to you. And when you're making a decision about something that you have the right to decide over, that's called authority, the authority to make the decision. And when you're in authority to make a decision about people that you have in your life, how you relate to them, you may not be over someone, but you have a decision about yourself and how I'm going to relate to this person. All of a sudden, your relationships with God and people, as we saw last time, especially God, they become a, a sacred trust that God has delegated to you for how are you going to choose to, to serve him in these relationships. And when you see my relationship as something God has an expectation about and I'm serving him in this one another deal with these people, whatever, whoever the person is, you can say, okay, um, the, the Sermon on the Mount makes a lot more sense when I turn the other cheek. It makes a lot more sense, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. It makes a lot more sense that um, I don't have to secure the outcomes I want. I've got to make the choices in faith, trusting that God has me. I make the choices that, that are going to be pleasing to him in the personal relationships. I let go of trying to control outcomes. God's in control of the outcomes. I make my decisions for what he told me. He said, do this, he do, it, do it this way, love one another. Okay, I'm gonna choose that. But if I do that, I'll lose. No, no, lose yourself in God. He's got you. And so that's the idea of biblical ownership, that you've got all these decisions with people, with relationships, with your property, with even your work. That as God's man or woman in the circumstance, your decision should incorporate what God loves, what God wants, who God is. And that, in that sense, you walking around as the temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6, your life is now worship. This isn't, this isn't worship, okay? Just the only thing in the Word is worship. Everything you're doing as someone walking by the Spirit is worship. And so um, that's really the idea here in um, biblical ownership or real Christian stewardship. If you'll turn again to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I want to talk about stewarding something that we don't tend to associate with stewardship. We don't tend to think of what Paul does here as something that we're going to steward, but Paul has to learn that it is. And today I'd like to talk about stewardship or owning a crisis that has been placed on me that I am responsible to manage. When I have hard times, when I have hardships that come my way, I can think about how bad it is, and I can dither about how much it hurts, and it does, and I can do absolutely nothing useful in feeling sorry for myself about the situation. And I'm speaking first person for a reason. I can completely be ineffective in the crisis. This hurts. I'm not doing anything while it hurts. They say that men... I. I don't, know if, I don't know who says. They say, I don't know who says, that men, when they get you know, the sniffles, they're useless. Women work through pneumonia and you know, uh, vacuum wall ironing and, um, or run the business. And all, you know, women are very effective in their, when they're hurt and, um, and sick. And men, are, they get a little sneeze and then they have to go to bed for the week. And, um, but um, that's just my house. Anyway, um, the... The, the crisis comes and we feel sorry for ourselves because it hurts or because we're afraid or, or, or whatever. And we don't think about, just a second, I am God's image bearer. 
with the Holy Spirit living in me and the power God gave me as a human being to make choices. So that what I want you to do, what I want to do with my problems, with my hardships in life when they come, I want to stop thinking of myself as someone hurting from this and start thinking of this as an opportunity to trust in the Lord and manage what he's given me to manage. He's not asking you to do something that you can't do, but he knows that you can't do what he wants in your own power. And so 2 Corinthians 12 is the ultimate example of this in the New Testament. The context is a rebellious group of believers that don't want to hear from Paul because they, he doesn't fit their cultural expectations of a good leader. He's not flashy. He's not polished. As one of my uh, former commanders said, he's not refi- refined. He's not, he's not uh, an orator. He's a teacher. And uh, people don't want to be taught. They want to be inspired. They want flowery language that brings them to the heights of their emotional whatever. And Paul doesn't worry about all that stuff. He preaches Christ and him crucified and breaks it down. And you could read about how Paul thinks in his letters. Well, this is 2 Corinthians 12. And he's dealing with these people that don't appreciate that he is God's man for them in the moment, having special revelation, prophetic word-for-word revelation from God to them. And they don't value that. They value the flash and the panache of the uh, Mediterranean Greco-Roman orator. And so they're like the world. They're Corinthians. They're like the world around them. They think like the pagans. And Paul is saying you need to change the way you think. And so First and Second Corinthians are always calling for a repentance, a change of mind. And the Corinthians who are stained by the world and think like the world, and they need to think like God wants them to think. And this is very communicative. If you're wondering how, how would the Bible uh, reach my culture? How is, where's there a cultural comparison in, between what God's saying in the Bible to my culture today? It was probably First and Second Corinthians. Post-Christian America uh, is very Corinthian, okay? Well, so these rebellious believers, and they're all Christians, and that's important to recognize. A lot of people struggle with this. These are believers in Christ, born again by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, guaranteed eternal life with Christ, having it now, not living it, but having it, and uh, incapable of being taken out of his hand. They are the saints, Paul calls them. But yet he has to dress them down. And this he kind of does in verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, this is a, a place where Paul is uh, talking about why he should get a hearing from them and they should think he's the real thing. And it's really strange when you're in a leadership position and you have to do something like this. You have to break out your resume. You have to go get your Medal of Honor off the wall and show them and say, I actually know what I'm talking about. And they did that in chapter 11 with all the sufferings that he bore for the, for the gospel. And these rich Corinthians have not. And so he's the real deal. And now in suffering for the gospel, chapter 11 and chapter 12, he's the real deal in, um, in ministry because he has the revelation from God. And that's what he's going to say. I've, I've received special revelation from God. The way he talks about it is obliquely from the side. He talks about the revelation he received by talking about a man in the third person. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Now he is talking about himself. That's the only way this works. But notice the way he talks from the side about himself. Because the point he's going to make is, as he rubs his pain from the the thorn in the flesh, and he tells them this, he's saying, Whatever happens, we cannot exalt me. 
who received this revelation. This is about Christ and he gets the glory. So the, the, this is all about not exalting himself when he tells them this. And yet he has to bring the resume. This man was caught up to the third heaven. And then the third heaven is also called paradise in um, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, which is an interesting thing because, um, because paradise is in Luke 16 uh, in Abraham's bosom. And so wherever uh, the, the abode of the believing dead are, that's paradise. I was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. I like when Paul repeats himself and he's redundant and he says the same thing twice. Inexpressible words, which one may not express is what he says. Just so we're sure we understand he got stuff that he can't even talk about. That's the point of verse four. On behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. So Someone that received revelation, we can boast about the revelation, but I can't boast in myself is my paraphrase of what he's saying, because I'm just going to talk about my weaknesses, despite the glory of receiving revelation. Paul got marvelous things directly from the Lord Jesus, and through his letters, he says things like, I mean, this is one of the most autobiographical places in Paul's letters. He says things like, "Um, I think the Lord didn't say, but I say. Why does he say that? Not because he's got a, a, a transcript of all Jesus' words when he was in his earthly ministry. He's not reading the Gospel of Matthew's quotations of Jesus when he says, I, I say, but not the Lord, or the Lord doesn't say, but I say. He's saying, I didn't get this one directly from Jesus teaching me, apparently, in this event, because Paul became a believer after the resurrection of Christ, after his ascension and glorification. But see, Jesus is, uh, is gone off the scene. And so, well, it's too late for somebody like Saul of Tarsus to learn enough to set the Mediterranean world on fire for the gospel and the Gentiles. Too bad that, that the Lord didn't know that um, Paul needed to meet Jesus before the resurrection, before the cross and be discipled with the others. Well, actually, no, that's not true. God just caught him up to the third heaven and had some Bible time with him. And uh, I'm sure that was some quality right seat time or training that the Lord gave Paul where he's directly communicating to him. Any other, anybody else know where in the Bible we have somebody with prophetic revelation from God who's witnessing the throne room of God, who sees the Lord in a vision and is instructed by him? It's Isaiah chapter six, the story of Isaiah's commissioning there in book one of Isaiah. It's one of the, if you're like, looking for some Bible reading that you can kind of, in a short reading, kind of sink your teeth into and understand and kind of get a sense, and, but also ponder a little bit, check out Isaiah chapter 6. It's fantastic. It's phenomenal and so very clear uh, to me what's going on there, but it's a very similar event here that Paul describes. And then verse 6, for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth, but I Refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. You should listen to Paul for one reason and one reason only. He has God's special revelation that he received from the Lord, and God, who's sovereign, got to decide that's how he wanted to do it. Now, think about what this means. The most ardent anti Christian activist, perhaps in the Mediterranean world, in the, in the Roman world, the most ardent 
pro-Judaism Pharisee of the Pharisees, the young and upcoming rising star of the great rabbis. It's taught by Gamaliel himself. So into persecution of Christians that he's leading the charge to go get the Christians who have fled Jerusalem for Damascus. God so sovereignly decided that I'm going to use him to get all the Gentiles together and to know Jesus Christ uh, the way Peter is working among the Jews. And God did that. And it's one of the great um, ironies of the scriptures that you took the most ardent anti-Christian and God blinded him on the road to Damascus and spoke to him. Jesus spoke to him and he became a believer. And God can do that. Don't lose hope. Don't lose faith in God's power and the power of the gospel when you think of those rank unbelievers in your lives that just are hardened. I can't do it. I just won't believe. God can do a wonder in someone's life. And it may be a road to Damascus kind of event. It may take something. Um, be, I think it always takes something beyond our power to make the gospel clear. But God's in charge of the circumstances. Nevertheless, this is who we're talking about, is that the reason to boast in Paul, the reason you should listen to Paul for the Corinthians and for us is because he has God's word. Not because Paul's a clever guy. Not because he's got better reasoning than the other rabbis, but because he got God's word and then he reasons with it and teaches us how to think it. And that's the letters of Paul. So now he's going to tell them, okay, so just as soon as I tell you that I got the special revelation I have from the, from the Lord Jesus himself in the throne room of heaven, he then says in verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there is given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. That's a keep me from exalting myself sandwich. Did you catch that? He starts with a, it's to stop me from exalting myself. He tells you that there's this oppression that God permits in his life. He calls the thorn in the flesh and we don't know what it is. And then he says, again, to keep me from exalting myself. When I was being trained in, in the army cadet system, we didn't do sir sandwiches. We didn't say, sir, yes, sir. That was a sir sandwich. Do I look hungry? Why did you just feed me a sir sandwich? I heard that one time on our day in Beast Barracks, and then we didn't say sir sandwiches anymore. We didn't say, uh, like, but I've, I'm told other services have this, and um, that must be entertaining. But, but Paul gives a not to exalt myself sandwich, because that's the point of the, to that's the topic that he's saying. He's saying, you want me to boast and to, to brag and to give you letters of recommendation and say that I'm, I'm worthy of listening to, but the only reason to listen to me is that God gave me his word. And here it is, and I'm offering it to you, and I'm serving it up to you. And they would be fools not to receive it. But he says that this is a, a messenger from Satan. Is that hard for us to hear? that God's enemy is on enough of a leash that God permits him to do things. This is right out of Job chapters one through three. God is sovereign, Satan is not. God is omnipresent, Satan is not. God is omniscient, Satan is not. Satan wants to be like the most high God. He's got this oppositional thing we read about in, in Isaiah 14. 
and he is directly opposed, and his rebellion against God is the cause of all the suffering and hardship and heartache, and bringing the humans into that is why we have the curse of the ground and the curse of the air and the curse of the, of the creation and our own death, and Satan's responsible for it, and there will be no tears for the devil when he's thrown into the lake of fire with his fallen angels. But I just want you to see that God is working through all means, through all circumstances. And even Satan wanted to get at Paul. God gives him, he, he, he unleashes the, he, he loosens the leash a couple notches, then Satan can throw this thorn demon at him, this thorn attack, whatever it is. People have conjectured that it's his eyesight because he had trouble with his eyes. We know that he lost his sight when he was blinded on the road to Damascus and scales fell from his eyes when Ananias uh, laid hands on him. We know that later he says, see what big handwriting I use. So you know it's written with my own hand. And he uses amanuenses, people that write for him, like uh, taking dictation and write his letter by hand because he can't perhaps see anymore. And he's got Luke who wrote a third of the New Testament, who's the beloved physician. And why does Paul need to hang out with a physician? It may be that he's just a traveling compassion companion, but Paul doesn't say Luke, the beloved companion, he calls him Luke, the beloved physician. I mean, perhaps, perhaps we are uh, seeing a man in physical trouble because of this thorn in the flesh. It may be his eyes. It may be um, another cause. But one thing we're certain of, do y'all know what this is? It hurts. A thorn in your flesh hurts, and that's the reason he uses that language. Have you ever had a thorn in your flesh? Have you ever, um, have you ever fallen on a thorn and where you fell in your arm or your hand? I've had this a couple times. It hurts, and you can't even see it. If it breaks off, you just see a little dot. It's a little dot on your, on your skin. Why does it hurt so bad? What is that? It won't wipe off. What? Every time I touch it, it hurts more. Oh, that hurt. That still hurts. And then you finally get some tweezers. You're like, I don't, it doesn't look like a sliver. And you grab the edge of it and a thorn comes out. And you're like, oh, that's why that hurt. <laughs> it's physical pain that he's describing. And it may be spiritual pain. It may be emotional pain, but it hurts. And so he calls it a thorn in the flesh. And God gave it to him as a governor. God gave it to him because Paul, as great a believer as he is, as mature a Christian, as committed to the Lord, as knowing Christ, as walking by the Spirit as he is, he is subject to the same thing all of us are subject to. He can, he can exalt himself and promote himself, and it all be about him in his own head without even thinking about it. But if you're dealing with the thorn in the flesh, well, you, you're back to that. You're not on you. You're on that. Lord, save me. Lord, help me. I need your help. Walk with me. And this is uh, a governor God places on Paul to keep him from exalting himself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And um, this is an interesting statement because there are very few examples in the New Testament where people directly appeal to Jesus after the resurrection. Most of the prayers, and especially of Paul, are to the Father. And Jesus, the Son, is not the Father. The Father, Son, and Spirit are one God in three persons, okay? But the Father is a different person than the Son. That's central Christian doctrine that kind of defines our confession. And so most of the prayers in the Bible are addressed to God the Father. And you, you don't want to start your prayer with, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for all your provisions and giving us your Son. And then without switching your referent, you say, And thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. You don't mean to be a heretic and commit the sin of, or the heresy of patropassionism, or that the Father paid for the sins of the world on the cross instead of the Son. 
People have thought all kinds of crazy things through church history. You don't mean to be a patripassionist, but you, you messed up your Trinitarianism there. But it's very interesting here, Jesus speaks to Jesus. I'm sorry, Paul speaks to Jesus. Paul says, I implored the Lord three times. Is it okay to pray to the Lord Jesus Christ? Only if he's God. Only if Jesus is God. Otherwise, you're praying to somebody who isn't God. You're giving to something less than God what belongs only to God. And this is one of the proofs in church history that we have confessed the deity of Christ or that we have prayed to him. So when you pray to somebody that's not God, that becomes a problem theologically. And I understate that, but concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. So this is the word from Jesus on the three requests. Please take this away. Please take this away. Jesus asked the father three times, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, let your will be done. Paul implored the Lord three times that this might be removed from him. That's not the plan. So you're going to have to serve me with the thorn in your flesh is the message from the Lord. But don't worry. Well, easy for you to say. No, no, no. Don't worry. My power is on display. Your power is at its lowest as it's, your, as it's nadir. My power is at its summit. This is the point that I'm making through your circumstance. So given revelation, now watch the pattern, given the revelation of Christ regarding the suffering, that I have a purpose in it, it is my glory, and is my power shining through you, that's what that means. Given that there is revelation from God, Paul now has a decision. He has to become a steward, steward of the revelation he just received, and so do you and I. The revelation we've received today from God's word through the apostle Paul, we're now stewards of this, and we have decisions to make. And we're stewards of that capacity to make decisions. What will you do? What will Paul do with that revelation? The answer is no. But I've got something better. Trust me. Basically what Jesus is saying. With that, Paul launches on a beautiful, a beautiful exaltation of the Lord Jesus and his power. He says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I'd rather have this hardship to tell you about so that Christ's power could dwell in me rather than take the thorn away and I not have that power. It's worth it. That's the application Paul takes from Jesus' words. What do you do when the Lord tells you, no, I've got something better? What do I do when the Lord says, no, I've got something better? I trust him or I don't. It's a choice. Some of you want it to be an inevitable feeling you have. I just feel faithfully toward the Lord. I feel faithingly. I feel faithwardliness. I feel, I feel a faithward, faithward feeling. That's not the deal. He tells you the deal, then you've got to choose. I trust you or I don't. And I, I trust you now. Well, what about now? I still trust you now. Still trusting you now. And it's a con you just push the faith button and you, and you hit uh, lock and you, say, and you, you leave it there. And you trust him. And that's faith. And it's a choice. And it's an ongoing choice. And it's in the revelation Jesus gave him. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. This is how to be a steward of your hardship. It's to take God's revelation, 
think it through and apply it to the crisis at hand and look at it in terms of that revelation, to look at it with God's perspective. And I have a proposed, a proposed way to do this in the crisis. Uh, some of you have been talking about this a lot. I'm calling it the first battle drill. First battle drill, that's, that's for my military background. No, not the Gospel of Matthew. Why did it do that? Because machines, and I'm not good at them. Come on. Every time I try to do this, the computer fails me. But it's really not the computer. It's me failing me. So the five R's of battle drill one. In, in the military field manual um, on, um, on battle drills, the first one is react to direct fire. Do you know what you're supposed to do in the army when someone shoots at you? I mean, a bad guy in a combat circumstance. Do you know what you're supposed to do? Duck. That's the second thing you do. Actually, it's the second thing. There's a first response to being fired at. And it may feel counterintuitive. You immediately return fire. It isn't necessarily well-aimed fire. You don't take time to line up your shot. You just shoot back. That's the first thing. The first thing is this reaction. When we have a crisis, by way of illustration using that, when you have a crisis when it's too hard, it's too much, I can't deal with this. I'm talking about the big heavy stuff where Paul is begging Jesus to take it away. And it hurts and you can't get away from the pain, whatever the pain is. And, and it may be just straight physical pain, but it might be something that hurts you worse than physical pain. When you're facing the crisis, you need to react. You need to re redirect your attention from the pain itself to God, to his revelation, to his word. And the way I best know to do this is to grab one of God's many promises that you've already memorized and to say it and to say it to him and to, and to, to believe it. My favorite go-to promise for this reaction where I redirect my attention to the Lord is, and we know that for all those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 encapsulates every experience and encounter and everything in all of history in the grand tapestry of God's sovereign arrangement of all of history. It favors me, one who loves him, who's been called according to his purpose. It's all going to work out to God's good for me. And it's personal, it's relational, it's all of these things. And so my challenge to you is grab a promise. What promises do you have? Can y'all share real, real quick? We're kind of informal. Try to be kind of informal first hour. What other promises are there? I've got Romans 8, 28. Does anybody else have something that you could call to mind that's quick in your memory that you use? You veterans that know this drill like the back of your hand because you do it all the time. What's another promise that you could claim in the crisis? Yeah, Romans 8, 28. That's, that's a good one. What's that? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Interestingly, is that a promise? No, that's a command. Proverbs 3, 5, the, com the promises of verse 6. And lean not on your understandings for, and all your ways know him and he will direct your paths. So notice a lot of times the promises in the Bible directly follow commands in the Bible. My favorite, um, I was talking to one of you, my favorite uh, ripcord emergency parachute promises is uh, Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. But it comes after a command that's the cause and the peace is the effect. The command is, is be, be anxious or worry for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. That is, don't worry, stop it, or if you are worrying, or don't, don't go there, and pray. Take it to the Lord and let him know. And with thanksgiving, and that's the part, the ground wire, you got to hook up the ground wire with thanksgiving. You bring your thanksgiving to the Lord in your request, 
and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, you need to have some of these memorized. You need to have these ready-to-go promises that you know what God said and you know what he's going to do. How about the Lord Jesus' great commission is a command. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, right? What's the promise after the command? Lo, I'm with you. You're going to fly today, but Jesus said, lo, I'm with you always. <laughs> Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the earth. He's with you. That makes me think of, uh, of Psalm 23. I feel no evil for you're with me. In verse 4, what else? What are some other promises? That you could, I don't know, Pastor. I'll never leave you, never will I forsake you. Uh, quoted in Hebrews, and I believe that's Deuteronomy, when the Lord in the 30s, when it's quoted. I was looking this up. I don't know that off the top, unless I've been looking it up. But um, Lots of promises that you can grab. But let's start with, the, with Romans 8.28. It says, in the order in Greek, it says, and we know that for those who love God, that's the first thing, it's kind of a question. The scriptures command us to love God, do you? For those who love God, all things work together for good. There's a quibble. Some will translate it, God causes all things to work together for good. Others, all things work together for good is the way the King James, and I think that's actually a better reflection of the Greek. All things work together for good because he does it. For those who are called according to his purpose, he's got a plan for you. That's inherent in that promise. And it's everything. Does that mean everything's good? No. It means that even the bad things, like the thorn in the flesh that God is allowing Satan to wreak on Paul, it's for his good. And that's a faith claim. See, now what you do when you claim a promise is you're engaging your faith. This is faith rest. This is taking the promises of God and trusting in God regarding the nature of that promise. And that is return fire. It's not well-aimed. It's not fancy. It's not reflective. I'm not real sharp yet. I just am responding and reacting in the crisis. So let's keep moving. The next piece would be to seek refuge. That's the battle drill uh, that you find cover and concealment. Get behind a piece of rock or a tree or a bunch of dirt or something to, uh, once you've put their head down with well-aimed, with, with, with rapid return fire, then you seek cover and concealment to set yourself up for a good shot and to get ready to plan and to start maneuvering. You've got to get to a safe place. This is Isaiah chapter 30. God told them, you need to come back to me and find peace and rest and have your refuge, rely on me, trust in me. And this is in faith. Knowing that God has me, knowing the promise that he's given me, I'm now going to think in terms of his protection, that I have him as my, as my rock, as my refuge. And it's a thought process, and it's a claim of faith based on that promise. And then you need to think. Having established God back in the picture and redirecting your attention and taking refuge in him, you need to think what is the problem that I'm facing? This is a part we don't want to do so often, thinking it's a work Americans aren't willing to do. Um, we don't want to think about the problem. We want it to not hurt anymore. But why does it hurt? It's a really important thing to, to work through. Maybe it's just, again, maybe it's just straight pain. This just hurts. Okay. End of, end of discussion. But what if it's not physical pain? What if it's this is... I can't get my mind off this problem. It's bothering me. It's, it's, I'm, I'm becoming neurotic about it. Whatever the issue is, I'm really struggling with this interpersonal challenge. Usually it's people. What, what's the nature of this problem? 
what am I standing to lose? All fear, I think, is fear of loss. I, I'm pretty sure all illicit fear that isn't the fear of the Lord is fear of loss. Loss of life, loss of health, loss of wealth, loss of what are you afraid you're going to lose? And why, why are you upset? And in a place of refuge, you can think about this. You can reflect. You shouldn't spend all day dithering, but you should ask God. Should be, you could do all these things in prayer. But after you've reacted and after you've sought refuge in, in, in a mindset of trusting in God that he has me, now think about what's bothering you. Now, some people will stop at refuge and they'll just say, oh, God's got me. And they won't deal with the thing that they need to deal with. You need to think about what the issue is because God made you capable of working through things. And now, and this is a stewardship that he's given you. So you got to think, what's the problem? And then once I have correctly diagrammed the problem in my head, once I've seen this is why it's bothering me, this is what it is. This is the scope of it. It's this thing that is the problem. She or he will not do X. And it's saying something about us or me that I can't bear to, to think about, whatever, whatever the problem is, what you're, I'm afraid, I'm hurt, whatever it is, I now have specified it. I'm looking at it. I've got my, um, my MRI and they've measured, that radiologist measured the cancer. Okay. We know exactly what this thing is. Okay. And that's a really, I think it's really helpful to be able to do that. Now here's what's the next thing is to relate. It's, it's ours. So you can remember relate is where I'm looking at the problem right here and I can't see past it. Relating is where you back up and you, the problem didn't change size, but my perspective changes. And I take the other things I know about God besides just a simple promise or two, and I think about what he said about himself. He's sovereign, righteous, just, loving. I grab the attributes of God and I apply them to this situation. And I relate who God is to this thing that the bigger my perspective gets, the more I'm thinking of him and what it means that Jesus died for my sins and is my savior forever. And I didn't say I feel super uh, holy about that. I said, the more I think about that and can relate this problem to the reality of the love of God and the work of Christ and the eternal destiny God has given me, that problem puts, gets, gets in its proper perspective. And the problem didn't go away. It didn't change. But I changed, my perspective changed. I'm looking at it differently. I'm relating that problem to the truths of God. And then the last step is the command that God gives us to rejoice. Once you have the cross in your perspective, once you're thinking again about your eternal destiny in Christ, wait a second, Jesus is the heir of all things in Hebrews. And in Romans 8, we are fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with him so that we'll be glorified together with him. Now, wait a second. If Jesus is the heir of everything, he owns it all, and I am in Christ a fellow heir with him, that makes me an heir of what? I own in Christ it all. There's no loss. You can't lose if you are the heir of all things with Christ. You see what I mean? That's, this is the rationale of what God says about you, about himself, about his promises for you. And that relates step, we're feeding that all the time with the word of God. We're constantly thinking about who God is and what he said he's going to do. And so we have a, an obligation to rejoice. You, you can rejoice in your suffering. And, and that last step is evident when Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses and all these things for when I'm weak, I'm strong. I can be content. I can rejoice even with the thorn in the flesh, even with this problem that is still there. See, the problem didn't go away. 
Didn't you want to rub the genie? Pastor, let's do a different process. Let's tell God, this is bad. I don't like it. Uh, take it away. That's my three steps. This is bad. I don't like it. Take it away. Well, Paul tried that. It doesn't work. That's not the process. The process is to relate God's revelation to your circumstance and rejoice in the Lord always. Paul says from prison, again, I say rejoice. You, you don't want to skip that last step because right as soon as you've worked through this through tears, as you've gone, th- and all of this could be in prayer. You could talk th- through all of these things with God in prayer. I recommend it. Right as soon as you've got that moment where you're like, I can rejoice in Christ even though, when you're there. Be sure that the, perhaps the greatest opportunity to represent Jesus Christ in your day, week, or your year is right around the corner. Having been blessed with that stability and able to rejoice despite suffering, you're ready for God to bring someone to you that needs to hear of our so great salvation. You're ready to bear witness for God's greatness and his goodness and the wonder of faith in your life. Father, we need this in us. We need this work of your grace, your provision, and your power. The Apostle Paul prayed for three things for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1. Father, we pray these things for ourselves, for our church family. That we would know the riches of your inheritance. We would know your, um, the, 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 the hope of your calling, the riches of your inheritance, and the power that you have toward us who believe. What we're describing here, Father, is being a steward of this wonderful revelation through hardship and taking the crisis as an opportunity to trust you, to trust you and to glorify you even through the pain. Father, we ask for that strength. We know it is supernatural and countercultural and counterintuitive. Don't let us be stained by the world, but to walk in the light. We pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.